Good morning, good morning, good morning, Discover Church, where introverts and extroverts collide. It's so good to see. I love doing the greeter thing. I'm an extrovert. Studies tell us that most people are, 60% of people are highly relational introverts, which means that you want to you wanna talk to people, you just don't know how to. And extroverts like me, we just... I love going places with Brian. Brian's an introvert, so when we, have to go to, when we have to go to stores together, I just like having fun. Wherever I go, I'll talk to people. I mean, I'll talk to a tree. I grew up, by and large, most of my life, I was a single child growing up in Arkansas. My mom would be like, get out of the house. I've had many a conversation with a tree. I've debated a couple. And I've never lost. <clears throat> Extroverts, though, man, we're weird. We talk to anybody at any time. My wife's an introvert. Really makes her feel awkward. I used to do this thing in conversations uh, where I would be in a conversation. The other thing is I'm really tall. And so I would be in conversations with people at church. And, and Jessica would be next to me. And, uh, and unbeknownst to me, I would just kind of like close the circle on her. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you ever been in a situation where the circle just kind of closed on you? I've never been in that situation because I just look over. <laughs> but I, I have, I've had many a Sunday where I get home and Jessica goes, I really hate it when you cut me out of the circle. I go, what do you do when that happens? She goes, I don't know, I just... Hmm. <laughs> anyway, it's good to see you guys today. My name's Journey and I'm the pastor here. It's such a privilege to have you here. Uh, with us today. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing in the series that we started last week called I'm Losing My Religion. Now, if you were here last week on Easter Sunday, how many of you here? Let me hear a hoot, a holler, a amen, or a hand clap, something. Man, praise God. It was awesome last week. We learned a stunning truth. Um, at least it was stunning. It was a stunning revelation for me when I learned it in my relationship with God. And, and, and I was Glad to be able to share it with you last week. Perhaps it was a little bit of a, it rocked your boat a little bit. We learned this stunning truth that religion is dead. Three of us are excited about that and the rest of us are trying to figure out why did he just say that? And uh, you'll have to go back and listen to last week's message. But man, because we, because of this, what happens is, is we continue to approach God. Oftentimes, most people approach God through the avenue of religion. What we learned last week is that it's exhausting well, I learned last week that it's exhausting um, and hopefully tried to illustrate that for you. And I'm just excited to celebrate with you today. Four people crossed from death to life last week with a relationship with Jesus. And so if you served last week in any capacity, I just want you to know, like the Bible says, that, that, that's added to your account in heaven. That, that, that's on your credit when you get there. Um, you help make that possible. And so I'm just glad that you're here. A lot of people uh, get, get a little discouraged. They think it's negative, negative thing when they get to the point of thinking, you know, I, I think I'm losing my religion. And, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't really get worried about that. Matter of fact, when I hear that from somebody, I start getting kind of excited, uh, which is weird when a preacher says that, pastor says that. Um, but I believe that there's, a reason, uh, that there's a reason why I want you to understand why I get excited about when somebody gets to the point of losing their religion. And, and this is really going to be the underlying thought for the next several weeks as we walk through this together. 
Um, but I believe this next thing I'm getting ready to say, and we're going to put it on the screen, and I want somebody to write this down today because I believe that God very much so wants you to know this. And, 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 and it took me a while to understand this. And the understanding of religion being dead creates this empty void, and it oftentimes causes people to feel like losing your religion is a bad thing. But I want you to write this down, that God has been waiting a really long time for you to lose your religion. He's been waiting a very, very long time. And so if you have ever been in a place or perhaps you're in a place or season now where, where you feel like, man, I'm losing my religion. Maybe you're here and at one point you lost your religion. You walked away from church. You walked away from faith. You walked away from the whole Jesus thing and, and something happened and, or a series of events led you to that point. I want you to see um, as we spend these next four weeks walking through this that there are certain emotions, certain thoughts, certain feelings that come to mind that led you to a point of walking away from church or or. Or, or brought you to a precipice of wondering, is this even worth it? I mean, I'm doing all of these things and, and does it really even matter? And I believe that, 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 I don't believe that God causes the things that leads to these emotions, thoughts, or feelings. But what I want you to see as we walk through this for the next four weeks together is that the things that lead you to those thoughts, feelings, and emotions that would cause you to say, man, I think I'm losing my religion. Well, those are things that God is grateful for because, he's because it means that you're getting close to understanding what he wants. And as I said last week, religion is not of God, it's not from God, it's a man-made thing. And so I'm excited to walk through this. The title of the message today uh, is Friend of Sinners. And I've called it this because a lot of people, when they think of Jesus, they think of Jesus as some um, angry uh, vengeful uh, being in the sky, or, or maybe some people think of Jesus as a cosmic fun sucker, just sucks the fun and just kills the fun and everything. Some of you, when you think of Jesus, you think of all of the rules and the expectations, and, and well, for a lot of people, when you think of Jesus, the last thing you think of is, is friend of sinners, but I want to help you see today, we're going to walk through scripture because a lot of us have had some interactions and some encounters that have framed our perception of who Jesus is, and I believe that it has framed or created a perception of Jesus that's not accurate. If you've ever been frustrated uh, with, with, with God, if you've ever been to a point of, uh, 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 of thinking that maybe this whole Jesus thing is not really worth it, it's not really all it's cut out to be, I want you to know that, that the things that led you to that point of frustration um, are not an accurate depiction of who's, who Jesus is. I believe, and I've experienced this in my life, that Jesus is the most irresistible force on the planet. And that if we could just see him clearly... If I, could, if I could get past his people, if I could get past some of the chaos that organized religion brings, if I could get past all of the rules and the expectations and the legalism and the hypocrisy, if I could just get past it, if we as a people could just, could just like swipe away the clutter and just clear the deck for a moment, if we could just see him clearly, then I believe that we would not have any other response than to do everything that we can to follow him closely. So I want to do the best that I can today by running through some, some uh, encounters that Jesus has when he is on planet earth to try to paint, allow Jesus's life to paint for you a more accurate depiction of who he is and how he responds to people who aren't necessarily all about Jesus. 
And I believe that we're going to learn some things together today that is going to challenge us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be challenged today. So you might want to, you know, get comfortable. It's going to get hot for a minute. And man, if you're here today and you don't follow Jesus and you're not really sure all about him, man, praise God that you're here. You're in good company because we're a bunch of jacked up, broken, messed up people that have found real hope in Jesus. And we're just glad you're here. We're going to be covering a lot of ground today in the Bible. I apologize in advance. We're going to have the verses on the screen. Um, But I want you to see today, the first interaction that we're going to see is with a dude named Matthew. All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and it says this, Then he, that's Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, a couple things here. Um, in, in, uh, in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, this guy, Levi, is referred by two different names. In this instance, in the Gospel of Mark, he's referred to as Levi. In the other three Gospels, he's referred to Matthew. Sometimes that's a real hiccup for people. Who is it? Is it Levi or Matthew? Make up your mind, man. What are, who are you? Um, And the reality of it is, is that Levi uh, was his Hebrew name because he was a Jew, but Matthew was the name that he was called when he was in uh, Roman circles. Roman, the Rome, uh, Roman spoke Greek. And so Matthew was kind of his Greek name. Levi was his Hebrew name. And here's the deal about Matthew. Didn't nobody like him. Anybody know anybody like that? Don't nobody like him. The reason why nobody liked Matthew is because he was a tax collector. And the reason why nobody liked tax collectors is because what the Romans would do in kind of their sick, sadistic, twisted kind of way, they would come in when they would invade a territory, they would allow the religious leaders to have the religious control so long as they followed under a certain set of rules. And then they would identify people within that people group to be tax collectors and they would entice them with an absurd and obscene amount of money. If you'll just come work for us and impose and collect our taxes on your people, we'll pay you a stupid amount of money. And for some people, the money was just too good. So as soon as somebody took that job, immediately they were ostracized by their family. Nobody liked them. Their family didn't like them. Their friends didn't like them. Not even their mama liked them. Mama loved him, but didn't like him. Family gatherings were awkward. If you were in a family situation where perhaps uh, you raised somebody with a certain political orientation and then they grew up and became a champion of the other side, or perhaps you're the one that was raised in a certain political orientation and you grew up and got your own mindset and started being a champion of the other side, y'all know Thanksgiving and Christmas is awkward. There's certain things we don't talk about because the knives start coming out. It's kind of what it was like in a Jewish home when their son had grown up and become a tax collector. Didn't nobody like Matthew. But Jesus comes along and sees Matthew sitting in the tax booth and says, hey, hey, Matthew or Levi, come follow me. And he just drops everything and follows him. We don't know why. We don't know what led to the events or why he would leave all of this in a drop of a hat and just go, but he does. And this is what it says uh, in verse 15. Now it happened as he was dining at Levi's house. Right, so Jesus comes up to, to Levi, to Matthew, says, hey man, follow me. And he just drops everything and starts following Jesus. And at some point in the following, he says, listen man, I, I need you to throw a party at your house. And I need you to invite your friends. Matthew would have been like, friends. 
what that is. The only people that a tax collector was friends with was other tax collectors. And so that's what happens. They were dining at Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. I love the way the Bible describes people. Tax collectors and sinners. Who are these sinners? These sinners are Jewish people who at some point had decided that the religious system and the religious way and all the laws and all the rules and all the hypocrisy and all the greed and all the power grabbing and all of the things that they saw from the religious people and the religious leaders just wasn't for them. They were turned off by it. And so they said, I ain't doing that anymore. And so then culturally, if you were a Jew and you are not active in practicing the Jewish faith, then you were just automatically called a sinner. Exactly. And so Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors, don't nobody like, and sinners who had said the whole religious system ain't for me. And then it says this, and it says, uh, and it says for there were many, and they followed him. And this is interesting, because Jesus, being the son of God, perceived by many to be a rabbi, has all of these sinners and tax collectors following him. Couple things. Sinners and tax collectors don't follow rabbis because rabbis are, 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 are messed up people. They've twisted everything to, to their own advantage and, and, and it's self-serving and they've added the rules and, and all the things and only the really religious people follow the religious leaders and the non-religious people, well, somehow they're following this rabbi. Here's the other thing that's interesting. Jesus chose not to hang out with the religious people. I turn the temperature up just a little bit. Jesus chose not to hang out with the religious people and instead opted to hang out with the tax collectors, which nobody liked, and the sinners, which said they were done with religion. So let me ask the question. If Jesus was here, would he hang out with you? Let the Holy Spirit do that. Verse 16, and it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, these are religious leaders, they saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners and they said to his disciples, so his disciples are also there, they pull his disciples over and this is what they say, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? They can't understand it. They are perplexed. They don't get it. This doesn't make any sense. No rabbi worth his salt would ever do that. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, and what Jesus does now is he draws a line in the sand and he drops a truth bomb in their, in their mind, in their hearts, and for everybody that's watching that doesn't fully make sense to the religious leaders, and this is what he says. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He said, I ain't come to hang out with all the religious people. Huh. I come to hang out with the people that the religious people are too high and mighty to spend time with. The Pharisees would be like, what? That's not how we do this. Don't you know the rabbi law? The rules, the bro code? We don't do that. It gets even better. A little bit later on, we see that Jesus is hanging out with some more tax collectors. Luke 15 starts off like this, verse one. Then 
all the tax collectors. So now it's gone from Matthew and his buddies. Now they've been talking to their friends, which by the way, when you have had a real encounter with Jesus, when you've seen who he really is and you begin to see the love and the grace and the goodness and kindness of God, that he's not in all what you thought he was and he's altogether different in all the best possible ways, you can't help but go tell somebody about it. And so that's what they do. These dudes don't nobody like them. They're a small crowd. They got a small club of people and they're the only friends that they got. And they just said, listen, we found somebody that even wants to spend time with us and we got to tell you about it. He's a rabbi. So now in Luke 15, all the tax collectors are hanging out. It says, and all the tax collectors and the sinners are still there. Drew near to him to hear him. Everywhere he goes, he draws a crowd. You wonder whether or not Jesus is really magnetic, whether or not Jesus is really irresistible. Just watch how many times Jesus shows up to situations in the Bible and all of a sudden people start gathering around. Verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes, notice I love this, they complained. This man receives sinners and tax collectors. Don't nobody want to follow us around. Don't they know how important we are? We done been here for a while. Nobody wants to come talk to us. Don't like how many people are following this Jesus, this rabbi. I'm I'm just going to call them sinners and tax collectors because don't nobody like them anyway. We didn't want them in our team anyway, y'all. Jesus responds to these Pharisees. I don't have time to read it. I encourage you to go read Luke 15 at some point this week because what Jesus does in response to this, in response to the complaining, is he tells three parables. A parable is a story that paints a spiritual truth in a physical lens. And he tells three different parables. All of them have a common trend of something that was lost, that was considered precious and desirable by the one who lost it, and how the one who lost it found it, and how when they found what was lost, there was much rejoicing and partying happening in the streets. And what Jesus is doing in explaining these three parables is is doubling down on the idea it's not the sick or the well who need a physician, it's the sick. And Jesus said, listen, I didn't come to come find the found. I come, I come to find the lost. Eventually what happens is we come across this other dude in Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, we come across this dude named Zacchaeus. Now, we don't know a lot about Zacchaeus except two things. Number one, the Bible says he was a wee little man. Now, I have to tell you something real quick. I had a friend of mine. I love him to death. He's one of my best friends in the world. He and I standing next to each other are the um, extremes of the height spectrum. We balance each other out. Collectively, we are two average-sized men. And I just got to tell you this, and I'm just going to be real for a minute. And I really didn't. I offended him, and I did feel bad about this. But I asked him, I said, hey, Stephen, is short man syndrome, like, is that really a thing? Like, if I were to bring that up in a message at some point, would that be offensive to people? He walked out of the office. He came back a couple minutes later and he goes, how dumb are you? (laughs) Of course it's offensive. Zacchaeus, we don't know if he had a little man syndrome, but what we do know is he was a wee little man. 
Jesus walking a crowd and Zacchaeus had done her. Zacchaeus is, is a, the second thing we know about him is he is a chief tax collector. He is like El Jefe of tax collectors. He is the guy when you're complaining at the store about your tax problem, you go, I want to speak to a manager. I have witnessed people in my family do that. They will remain nameless because they may watch this and I love them too much, Grandma. <laughs> Zacchaeus is the manager. So not only do people not like the tax collectors, how much you think, like Zacchaeus is in a crowd of his own because people don't like tax collectors and don't nobody like spending time with the boss. Zacchaeus hears about Jesus. He comes running into town. There's a whole crowd of people. Jesus is walking along and Zacchaeus finds a tree and climbs up into the tree. And what happens is, is Jesus comes walking by all the crowds of people, people shouting and, and, and going about their business and people curious about who Jesus is because everywhere he goes now, he draws a crowd and, and, and people talking to him, Jesus, 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 and having all these conversations. And wanna, you know, Jesus, can you heal me this? And Jesus, can you tell me about that? And Jesus stops and turns and looks in this sycamore tree and he sees this dude named Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And this was what he says. He says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must stay at your house. Now the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how Zacchaeus responds in this moment, but I would like to elaborate for a moment because I imagine it would be like, say what now? I mean, out of all these people, you know me? I mean, I know everybody here knows who I am. The reason why I'm up in this tree is because I'm a wee little man and I can't see over the people, but also I ain't got no friends. So you want to come to my house? You talking to me? That's exactly what happens. Verse six, so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Now the whole crowd is there and everybody knows who Zacchaeus is and everybody in the crowd's like, what just happened? Nobody goes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has stopped inviting people to his house a long time ago because don't nobody go to his house. He's a tax collector, he's the boss, and he's a wee little man. Notice what the crowd does, verse seven. And when they saw it, so they hear what happens, and then Zacchaeus and Jesus, they just start walking together towards Zacchaeus' house. So when they saw it, they all complained. It's not even the Pharisees anymore. It's like the whole town, the whole community is all upset, like, what is happening right now? Jesus, can't, you can't do that. Don't you know who he is? They all complain, saying he has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. What happens at Zacchaeus' house, we don't exactly know. We don't know about the full amount of the conversation that took place. We don't know what was served. We don't know if anybody else was there. But what we do know is that Zacchaeus came face to face with Jesus. And he was able to see Jesus clearly beyond all of the stuff of the religion and the religious leaders and how they had portrayed God to be. And he comes face to face with God and his life is radically changed by the grace of Jesus. 
And we see that his life is changed by the response of what comes after. Verse eight says, then Zacchaeus stood, all right? So they've already been at the house. They've already eaten dinner. Zacchaeus, he's already had this conversion experience. His life's been radically changed by Jesus. And Zacchaeus stands up now and he says to Jesus, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. This man went from being a selfish, stingy, uh, uh, egomaniacal, uh, only concerned about his own self-interest because as a tax collector and the chief tax collector, if he wanted to add to the Roman law of what the taxes were required, he could, and he could pocket whatever else he could get. And what he says, because he's been changed by Jesus, his heart is immediately changed from being a heart of selfish and stone and self-interest to immediately being overwhelmed with radical generosity and a desire to make recompense for all that he had done to shortchange people. He says, that's what happens when you come face to face with who Jesus really is. Your life gets changed. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he is the son of Abraham. And then Jesus draws another line in the sand when he says this, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. It's not, the, 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 it's not those who are well who need a physician, but the sick. I've come to seek and save that which is lost. Huge lines in the sand. That Jesus is, is painting a picture that he doesn't hate sinners. He's not angry with people who aren't all about him. In fact, For all the people who seem to have given up on the religious system, Jesus seems to be drawn to them. As if they are a prized possession that's been lost, disowned, abandoned, overlooked. He said, I'm here because I'm trying to find them. Because I created them and I love them. And they have come to believe something that's not true about me that has defined their life. And I'm here to redefine who I am and what I'm about because I have something better for them. You see, Jesus was very different from what people were familiar with because what they had come to understand from the other rabbis and the religious people and the religious leaders is that if you don't behave like me and if you don't believe like me, then we don't belong together. But Jesus came and said, listen, you do belong to me because I created you. And I'm not necessarily worried about how you're behaving or what you're believing right now. I just need you to see that I love you first. Can I just tell you, I long to have a church and I long to be a part of a church that can say loud and clear to the Northland, to Kansas City and to the world, you don't have to believe like us. You don't have to behave like us in order to feel like you can belong with us because at the end of the day, we are all designed and created by God and loved by him the same. Some of us have just not had the opportunity to have the the blinders removed to see how good and great he actually is yet. The last section of scripture I want to share with you is the most egregious of all. It would have have been um, radical. It would have been 
in saying what happened in this moment. One of the, one of the religious leaders named Simon um, decided, you know what? Everybody's having dinner with Jesus. I don't want to be left out. I don't want people to think that I'm less than. So I'll, I'll host a dinner and invite Jesus. And so this dude named Simon, he was a, he was a Pharisee, a religious leader, and he, uh, he decides to host this meal. Now, this was somewhat common for religious leaders to do this culturally um, speaking. And what would happen is in these moments, they, it would be more like, a, almost like a state dinner where uh, the people who were invited were really important people. They were either important rabbis or important people within the Roman uh, government or, or dignitaries, or religious leaders from other places around from where they were. And so they would host these really fancy dinners and, 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 and common people, everyday people were not allowed. They weren't invited. It was an invite-only situation. But what they would do to kind of throw the common people a bone is they would create and they, they built this observation area. I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was, it was an area where um, the common person could go and they could stand and they could watch these really important people eat and talk. For the religious leaders, it, it, was, it was seen as something that was um, gracious. You'll never be like us, obviously. You can never share a meal with us, obviously. But we want you to know that we really care about you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a place where you can stand and watch us eat. We know that you're poor. You ain't had food in a while. But oh, it's going to be such a blessing for you to just be in the, in the eye presence of us. So that's what they do. Simon invites Jesus to this dinner. And in this culture, an honor culture, uh, one of the things that is, is non-negotiable is hospitality. For a host to host something and not have um, the utmost of hospitality, it would have reflected poorly um, on the host because it would have been an insinuation that the host did not honor his guests. And there were several things that they would do as a part of the, 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 the uh, display of hospitality. And one of those things is they would have a servant. It was always the, the lowest servant on the totem pole um, when people would come in because they, would all, they all wore you know, so, uh, flip-flops and that kind of thing. And it was before people wore socks with sandals. Um, and so they wear flip-flops and their feet was nasty. I mean, ladies, you think, you think your husband's got nasty feet. You ain't seen nothing. Nastiness. And they would eat in such a way like it would be this, this really small table and they would eat where they would kind of sit down like this, you know? And so like, I'm like this and I'm eating at this small table, I have all these pillows. And then like the person sitting next to me would be sitting right there. And I would be sitting right next to somebody else's nasty feet. And the table wasn't but about 12 inches off the ground. And I don't know if you've ever tried to eat something delicious in the presence of something that stinks. It kind of kills it. And so because they would eat this way, then one of the things that they would do, they would always have the, the lowest servant on the totem pole would, uh, would wash people's feet when they came in. But something interesting happens at this dinner. Jesus comes in. And the servant doesn't wash Jesus' feet. Picture the scene. 
A room full of really important people dressed in really important clothes. There's a table with a whole spread and there's the people in the background, the the disheveled, the poor, the broken, the sick, the the needy, the desperate in the background and they're just kind of watching what's happening and then there are servants that are around, that that, that are going around making sure that everything is just right. Everybody walks in, kicks their sandals off and you know, someone washes the foot and then the other foot and Jesus walks in in the midst of them and he kicks his sandals off and he he lifts his foot for the servant to wash it and the servant refuses refuses to wash his feet. Now, we don't know this for sure, but in all probability, the master, the host, Simon, the, re- the religious leader, told the servant, wash everybody's feet, but don't wash his. Now, I think this is kind of funny because at the end of the day, the joke's not on Jesus, joke's on everybody else. Everybody else got clean feet. He's sitting next to eating next to people with clean feet. He's the only one with nasty feet. But in that culture, it would have been highly offensive. They sit down to eat and they're, sh- they're sharing a meal and who knows what kind of important things they're talking about. And then something crazy happens. Once you, once you see what happens, Luke chapter seven, verse 37. And it says this, it says, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Who is this woman? We don't, we're not 100% sure what her name is, but we do know what her occupation is. She's a prostitute. We know she's a prostitute because of the alabaster flask. For a prostitute in those days, it would have been a woman who was incredibly poor, probably a woman who did not have a husband or a woman whose husband died, but did not have any, any way for her uh, affairs to be taken care of in a male-dominated society. Most women couldn't have uh, just go get a job, so they would, they would do the oldest business in, on, uh, on the books, and so they would begin to sell themselves to the highest bidder moment after moment, day by day, night after night. And what they would have is their entire livelihood was based on this incredibly fragrant oil that was inside of uh, this alabaster flask. It would have been the thing that she would have used to freshen herself up before the next client. And they're all sitting down, they're all having dinner in this center, this prostitute, somebody that no well-respecting man would ever be caught having interactions with in the daytime much less a rabbi, she bursts into the scene. She goes past the stanchion. She goes past the red velvet ropes and the red velvet carpet. She goes right into the table while they're in the midst of having dinner. And she comes down and she takes this oil and she opens the bottle and she pours the oil out over Jesus's feet. Notice what it says, verse 38, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with, his, with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointing them with the fragrant oil. This woman is desperate. This woman is beyond the bottom of the barrel. She has been to hell, but has not been able to come back. She is still in a place where the only way that she can put food on the table for her, and if she has any children, is to subject herself to the highest bidder of anyone who has any interest at any given night. And she comes hearing about this Jesus who has healed people, hearing about this Jesus who has changed people's lives, hearing about this man who knows everything that there is to know about them. In John 4, Jesus comes to a woman who has had five different husbands, and instead of condemning her, he loves her. And he, she goes off and says, listen, I got to tell y'all about the man who knew everything that there was to know about me, but loved me anyway. 
And she bursts into this scene. She doesn't care about the rules. She doesn't care about formality. She doesn't care about any of that. All she knows is that the man who might have a hope to give her a better life and a better future, and not even about prosperity, not even about her economic situation, but a sense of not feeling broken and ashamed and guilty and dirty anymore. Like she, he might be the man that could speak to her in a way that would give her a sense of value and worth and dignity that goes beyond how much she made last night. She is weeping at his feet. The Pharisees are indignant. They can't believe what's just happened, this upset to this beautiful night. All of the plans and everything has just been just right. They've set the stage here to upstage Jesus and to embarrass him. And Jesus shows up and this woman has come in and, and they can't believe what's happened. They are aghast. They're appalled. They're angry. They're upset. I want you to notice what Simon says, number th- verse 39. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. He didn't say it out loud. He said it in his mind. And he said, this man... If he were really a prophet, he would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. She has no worth. She has no value. She has no place here. Why is she here? We set something up so she can enjoy being in the presence of us religious people. And she has no self-respect. She's just going to burst into the scene and upset my dinner. I love what Jesus does. Jesus answers the thought that he has in his head. Verse 40, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, I love what's not captured in scripture. Imagine being in a situation, and I know this has happened because it's happened to me, where you're in a meeting and you think something, and for a second you think, what's the matter with me? Why would I think that? Am I sick? And then someone in the room responding to the thought that you just had. I love what Simon says. Uh, Teacher, say it. Jesus says there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one who owned 500 denarii, and the other 50 a denarius was um, the, the, the amount of money that was used to describe a day's worth of pay, uh, wages for a day's worth of work. So 500 days of work and the other had uh, a debt worth of 50 days of work. Verse 42, and when they had nothing um, uh, with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, and I imagine he probably looked around like, are you serious? Like, this is not hard. Obviously, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus responded to him and said, you have rightly judged. This makes logical sense. But what Jesus does next does not. Because Jesus is getting ready to take things to a whole nother level. Verse 44, then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. 
You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Not just any oil, but fragrant oil. Not just the cheap stuff, but the expensive stuff. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many. Jesus isn't blind to our story. He's also not offended by our story. Which her, uh, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Can I just pause for a moment? If your story and your relationship with Jesus is of a vantage point that I'm really not that bad of a person, I'm really pretty good, I just need a little bit of help on a couple of things, then, then, then you're missing the point. You, you, you think you just need a little bit of Jesus's love. And so your response is to love him just a little. And oftentimes it's no wonder in the seasons of my life where I start to get prideful and arrogant, start thinking that my stuff doesn't sting. It's amazing how my love and gratitude for Jesus begins to decrease as my realization or my, my belief that my need for Jesus decreases. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees would have been shocked. I mean, talk about just totally blown away. Who is this man that's, that forgives sins? This is blasphemous. Only God can do that. <laughs> Jesus doesn't answer it, but what they're beginning to understand is, is yeah, only God can do that. All of this. Verse 49, and said at the table, they begin to say to themselves, who is this who forgives sin? Verse 50, then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. It wasn't what she did that saved her. It was her faith in who Jesus was and what he could do is what saved her. All of this really helps us to understand that Jesus really earned the title that he was given that was thrown at him as an insult and Luke 7, 34 says this, Jesus is talking about what happens to the Pharisees who were upset with John the Baptist because he was out there in the desert and he was weird, never interacted with people and he had a hard stance on all kinds of things. But G, they did, so they didn't like him because he wasn't human enough. He didn't interact with people enough. He didn't do the things that people do. Jesus comes along and he hangs out with people and it says this, the son of man, this is what they accuse him of. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber. That basically just means a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, this title, friend of sinners, was something that was hurled at Jesus as an insult by the religious people. But I believe that Jesus took it as a badge of honor. You see, here's the reality. And when we study Jesus, if you, if, you, if you take and study the life of Jesus as recorded in the Bible, and you study his life, you begin to learn something and you see a trend of something that, um, quite frankly, is difficult for church people and religious people to wrap their brains around. But it's consistent throughout Jesus's life and throughout Jesus's ministry. And it's this, that Jesus is never offended by the sins of non-believers. Jesus isn't offended when somebody who doesn't believe in him and follow him and orient their lives around him, that he's not offended when their behavior doesn't match up with him. Why would it? Because they don't even believe in him.
He's never offended by what non-believers do. In fact, the only people Jesus seems to be offended by in his time on earth are the religious people. Why? Well, the religious people were upset and offended at how much Jesus loved people, but Jesus was upset and offended about how much they loved religion. The rules, the requirements, the expectations, the going through the motions, the, 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 the process that at one point he said, you spend all your time worried about cleaning the outside of the cup without realizing that the inside of the cup is dirty and disgusting. Jesus is never offended by the sins of non-believers. If I can just take a moment, talk to the Christians in the room for a second. If Jesus is not upset or offended by the things that non-believers do, then neither should we. In fact, if you really want to follow Jesus, then you have to understand that it's part of the mandate, part of the requirement that you love people like he did, especially when they do not believe or behave like you do. Oh, I'm sorry, you voted for somebody different than they did? Oh, you see the COVID, the vaccines, the mass things differently. Okay, well, I can hate them then. Oh, someone has a different vantage point than you do about the race conversation that we've been having. Well, there's your permission. Oh, they see the LGBTQ thing different than you do. There it is. Now you have permission from God to go be mean and hateful and angry. They they watch what news channel? Well, no self-respecting Christian would ever. If you love Jesus, you follow Jesus, then we're called to love those and serve those who believe and behave differently than we do. And the moment that your obsession with any of these things of earth become more important than your representation of your king, who his word says that people's lives are changed, they're drawn to him by his goodness. Did you know the Bible says that? That it's his goodness that draws people to repentance. It's not his righteousness. It's not his truth. It's not his power. It's not his word. It's not his consistency. It's not his condemnation. It's not even his grace. It's his goodness and the love and the grace of God is demonstrated to a watching world through the goodness of those who proclaim to follow him not our rightness or our opinions well that doesn't line up with God's word fine God will deal with that in a little bit Why don't you be less concerned about what's on the outside and be more concerned about what's going on on the inside of them? They're never going to see things the same way. 
until they see Jesus the same way that you do. And there's a whole lot of ground for us to disagree on political things and still love Jesus, by the way. That's a whole series of messages for another day. And if you're here today and if you've lost your religion, you've walked away from church, you've walked away from Jesus, you've walked away from God because at some point you felt overlooked, unloved, abandoned, then I want you to know Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's not offended by your life, by your past, by your unbelief. And I believe that Jesus would invite you today if you feel like you're losing your religion, like you're walking away from it all, or maybe you already have, for whatever reason, you found yourself watching this today. Then I want to invite you. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Religion's never going to get you there but a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords can and will bring peace and freedom and joy. He can change your life if you let him. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. One eight three five. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.